you can't have you know one separate hiring process for mm-hmm. for minorities and another process for everyone else. That's kind of like the definition of Jim Crow. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, March 7th. March Madness might be upon us, but we aren't talking college hoops today. We're talking football, specifically the myriad lawsuits involving the NFL. Eric Gardner joins me to discuss the latest off-season legal battles over charges of racism, discrimination, sexual harassment, wire fraud, and yes, that ongoing lawsuit over NFL Sunday ticket and why so many of us can't watch out-of-market games unless we pony up to the league. And later, Bill Cohan stops by to chat with Ben about why the knives are out for Goldman Sachs CEO and part-time DJ David Solomon. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of Powers That Beat. Tuesday, everybody. Football is in the rearview mirror, but the NFL offseason is always full of drama and not just because of trades and the occasional arrests. There are so many lawsuits out there uh, involving the NFL or uh, entities related to the NFL. And I'm joined today by Eric Gardner to walk through some of them. Eric, how are you doing, man? I'm doing well. You know, this NFL legal beat is a, is a beat in itself. It's, a, it's seriously nonstop. Well, this conversation will validate what I was talking to John Kelly about yesterday on Media Monday, which is we're not talking about X's and O's when we talk about sports here at Puck, but the business of sports is extremely compelling, especially when it comes to television. It also involves many stories about race, culture, society, etc. And you wrote about something this week that's the first thing I want to talk to you about, the first lawsuit I want to talk to you about, and that is the lawsuit uh, against the NFL by former Miami Dolphins head coach Brian Flores, who's basically accusing the NFL of discrimination and saying the quote-unquote Rooney rule, uh, which says that a franchise can't hire a coach until they've interviewed at least one minority candidate, is basically tokenism. It's a sham. He got a victory this week, Brian Flores, didn't he? Yeah. The NFL tried to hush him up in arbitration, and he was able to avoid that outcome. Uh, not fully. I, the judge said that he had to go to arbitration with his former team Miami in the Miami mm-hmm. Dolphins, but he was suing the league. He was suing other teams who failed to hire him. And for those entities, he doesn't have to go to arbitration, which is you know a big win. That's what his, his lawyers want. They want to have this out in the public sphere to shame the league, maybe to drive home a settlement. You know, the Rooney rule itself is pretty interesting because, you know, a lot of corporate America, you know, adopted that. I know Hollywood uh, was doing its own sort of Rooney rule-ish sort of thing for a while. Um, so it was very influential. And, and his lawsuit has definitely been taken notice of. People are, are very closely following it and they will continue to do so now that it's out and remains in the public. So I think when Flores filed this lawsuit, there was one black head coach in the NFL. Now there's three out of 32 teams. Over 70% of the rosters are made up of black players. Can you just explain for people who haven't really followed this what the meat of the lawsuit is? Like, what is he claiming? Because he does have some pretty strong evidence, at least on his side, that's come to light. Right. You know, one thing that should be said is that the NFL has evolved its policy. Uh, So, you know, it used to be such where, you know, the only thing that that an NFL team had to do was to interview a minority candidate before hiring. 
and they changed it. And I think they've had some success with the changes. But right now, uh, teams actually get draft picks for having a minority head coach that gets hired by another team. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's, there's kind of like incentive there to, you know, hire because you might be able to recoup some draft capital later on. But what his lawsuit is, is basically, this is tokenism, that if you're a black head coach with promising prospects, you get interviewed around the league, you know, you, you have so many job interviews, and then at the end of the day, the white head coach is hired, the one that was really picked at, at the start, and it just looks bad, and it doesn't really treat black head coaches particularly well. And so he's collected all sorts of evidence that it's a buddies club, you know, where, you know, the black head coaches are, you know, given, you know, you know, an interview, but not much more than that, not real consideration. He also has some things about, you know, how his owner at at the Miami Dolphins wanted him to tank. So it, it makes the league look really bad. And the NFL is a huge business, but one thing that that they don't tolerate is when their owners look bad. And uh, you know, in in the past, that they've spent you know billions of dollars to avoid that outcome, and and so that's why this is you know a big decision this past week because you know not necessarily they're going to lose the case, but they don't want to go through a very public discovery period where all this sort of evidence comes out, and you know who who knows what sort of evidence might be collected about other teams hiring practices so i mean is it necessarily illegal to claim tokenism you can say it's like a bad and stupid practice but is it is there like merit to the claim that it violated his rights in some way the rooney rule yeah it depends on the specific facts but you know ever since you know reconstruction you can't have you know one separate hiring process for mm-hmm. for minorities and another process for everyone else. That's kind of like the definition of Jim Crow. You know, I'm not sure whether it's a, you know a violation of the discrimination laws. I think that there'd be probably some very interesting arguments both for and against how you know our laws exist and whether or not the NFL's mm-hmm. you know process is how it fits in, but. You know, he's going to get the chance at least to, to make that argument. So uh, speaking of NFL owners, there's another lawsuit. And correct if I'm wrong from your perch there in uh, Virginia. Are there multiple lawsuits against Commander's owner Dan Snyder and the Redskins organization for allowing sexual harassment and discrimination to take place inside the organization? I feel like, I mean, I'm a Commander's fan and I'm getting lost in all of the <laughs> Dan Snyder scandals. Isn't there another one? Yeah, I mean, right now, the attorney general of D.C. Uh, has a couple of civil lawsuits. And, you know, honestly, I, I don't take those particularly seriously. I think they're kind of there's some real flaws in them. They they allege stuff like the Washington team did was tantamount to product deception uh, uh-huh. with how it handled its sexual harassment within the organization and what it was saying publicly. But the real thing that, that's happening right now is a criminal investigation that's going on into Dan Snyder and, and how he's run the team. There was a report by ESPN uh, late last week that there's a, a grand jury that's now convened and, and they're looking into loans that uh, Snyder took out on the team without potentially having a board vote on it. And there's the question of whether the league may have helped cover it up for him. All the stuff is going on while, of course, Snyder is trying to sell the team. 
Uh, so it's a really, really tricky situation going on. It's really explosive. It has the attention of political leaders too, obviously, because it's a local thing. The team wants a new stadium. Um, I, there's going to be lots of movement in the next few years over this. You know, just a huge dance. Uh, you know, the, the scuttlebutt is that that the rest of the owners want Snyder out, but it's a little tricky. You know, forcing his hand and doing that sort of thing. And you know, there's all sort of conflicting reports about you know whether he's being vindictive or not. You know, whether he uh-huh. you know whether he he is refusing to sell to like Jeff Bezos just on the principle that the Washington Post has covered him badly. Um, <laughs> but it's just it's it's just an odd situation and uh, a very hot one. But where where is Snyder most vulnerable legally in your mind right now? What's like what's his next hurdle? Well, I mean, if this criminal thing is true and if the prosecutors believe that they can prove that he committed some sort of, you know, wire fraud, some sort of financial fraud, that's mm-hmm. huge. I mean, he could be seeing the potential for jail time there. He could see, you know, the seizure of of, of the team, which is worth, you know, billions of dollars. So I think that's got to be number one on his priority list right now. You know, I think, you know, part of the reason why it's so hot for him is because he is the owner of this very valued team. So who knows if he he sells it and goes away and maybe the public pressure kind of like dissipates. But, uh, you know, I, I think that if I was Dan Snyder, I'd be pretty concerned right now based on everything that's out there. Yeah, I mean, I think listeners to the powers that be might be surprised to learn that the commanders, despite sucking terribly at football for so long are like one of the top 10 most valuable franchises in the NFL. I mean, like the Patriots, Giants, Niners, Bears, Jets, Eagles, Commanders. I mean, they're all up there around the $5 billion mark. And I mean, if, you know, Snyder could possibly sell the team for even more than that. So that dud of a franchise is actually really, really valuable. So if it gets seized, that's a disaster for him. The last thing I want to ask you about is near and dear to my heart and near and dear to my brother's heart because, uh, as mentioned, we are Commanders fans, also Bengals fans, but we live in California. So how do we watch our teams? Sunday ticket. There is a $6 billion class action lawsuit against the NFL, which runs Sunday ticket, basically claiming that it screws the rest of us. If you're not subscribing to Sunday ticket or forced to subscribe to Sunday ticket, you can't watch your team play like there's no a la carte menu of football available anywhere else how serious is this lawsuit oh this is very serious this one has been going on for seven years i'd forgive anyone for kind of forgetting about it or thinking (laughs) that you know it's not not a big thing but the fact of the matter is that it's survived all sorts of emotions to dismiss it's been you know revived on on appeal by the ninth circuit the supreme court at one point the nfl was begging the supreme court to get involved and the supreme court decided not to it's now earmarked for a trial next year like literally a couple of weeks after the super bowl and it's a huge thing not just because of the money on the line but mm-hmm. because this has the potential to just shake up the entire way the league operates right now the nfl is made up of 32 teams and while many people might not think of, of it this way each team is its own company and so the the question is in dealing with each other and pooling their broadcast rights and then selling them out is that some sort of conspiracy is that price fixing is that you know it would things be a lot cheaper for fans if each of the teams went out to the streaming market and independently licensed mm-hmm. and that's basically the big theory of this case the league says no 
if you didn't have this system where the league pulled their rights, you wouldn't have any games whatsoever. I mean, like it takes cooperation for, for two teams to meet each other at a certain time and, and to go on the thing. And this system has flourished. So it's good for the market and all that. So, but you know, that's the case that they will have to make a trial. The plaintiffs are being given a real shot to test their theory that they can go out there and force the teams to independently compete against each other, not just on the field, but off the field in the licensing realm. And the judge is say- is also saying, not only are we going to keep the prospect of $6 billion of damages out there, but you know, at the end of the trial, I might order an injunction that basically orders the league to do things differently. So it's a very, very interesting trial. Very interesting case. And late last week, you know, in a new development, the league uh, sued its insurers over this um, because they want the, the insurers to, to come and pick up some of the costs here. Uh, so it's, it's developing. Well, yeah, I mean, I finally caved this year and split Sunday ticket with my brother because I was watching football one Sunday. Maybe it was a Thursday. I don't know. And like, so no, it was definitely a Sunday. Some random Chargers Broncos game was the only option I had on cable. And I was just like, I can't. So I caved. <laughs> so if anyone wants to add me to that class action after the fact, just shoot me a DM on Twitter. Eric, thanks so much, man. Love talking sports. When we come back, Bill Cohan talks to Ben about the drama at Goldman. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Bill Cohan. Happy Tuesday, Bill. Hey, Ben. It's great to be with you, as always. Great to have you. Bill, you and I talked last week about how Wall Street is always evolving and changing, and we talked a little bit about the rise and fall of banking giants like Credit Suisse, which uh, right now is in the middle of this reinvention and pivot that's possibly life or death for this firm. More recently, you've been doing some writing about Goldman Sachs, which is not really in that kind of existential danger. It's one of the biggest and most profitable financial institutions in the world, possibly of all time. But there has been some grumbling inside the firm and among investors over decisions by the company's CEO, David Solomon, that they think are misguided, they think are weighing on the stock, and most importantly, has been shrinking the bonus pool, which, of course, is a truly unforgivable sin. But walk me through this. What are the critics so riled up about? Because to the lay observer from the outside, Goldman Sachs seems like it's doing just fine. Yeah, and Goldman uh, is doing just fine. Investment banking is so much about, you know, what have you done for me lately? You know, it's very, very hard for these firms, let alone the people who run them or the people who work there to take, you know, a longer term view. They have, of course, quarterly reporting. And, you know, since a vast majority of compensation of the people who work there comes in the form of year-end bonuses, uh, you know, year-end bonuses become very crucial to the way they think about the firm and how the firm's doing. Of course, what, you know, if they were really self-aware community, what they would do is say, oh my God, I can't believe I get paid anything like what I get paid for taking absolutely zero risk with my own capital. You know, it's, it's the greatest legal way to make money and wealth enhancement, uh, again, other than private equity or, or hedge funds that exist on the planet. But of course, that's not the way it works, Ben. 
But Goldman has made some mistakes over the last couple of years. I mean, they, they copped to that in uh, this Investor's Day presentation they had this past sure. week. What are some of those issues that cropped up? Yeah. So, I mean, look, Goldman uh, could have uh, stuck to its knitting, which was certainly the strategy of Lloyd Blankfein after the financial crisis. Uh, and I think the world did change uh, more than Lloyd thought it would. And Goldman got a little left behind. You know, there was, uh, well, I mean, first of all, there's the banks that were left that were much more universal banks and were commercial banks that now owned investment banks uh, that had sort of merged and undone everything that was done by Glass-Steagall, uh, the Glass-Steagall Act in the 1930s. So you had the behemoths of, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase now owning, you know, Bear Stearns, you know, among others. And you had uh, Bank of America owning Merrill Lynch. And you had Lehman and Bear Stearns gone from the picture. You had Morgan Stanley uh, expanding greatly into wealth and asset management by buying the old Smith Barney from Citigroup. So people were doing things, but not Goldman Sachs. And uh, I think, you know, in uh, the late stage of uh, Lloyd Blankfein's uh, tenure uh, and before uh, David Solomon came in 2018, so from, you know, beginning of 2016, uh, Goldman decided it should sort of inch out into the world of commercial banking. They teamed up with GM and Apple to provide credit card, back office credit card services. They created Marcus, which is their version of sort of an online fintech bank where they can, you know, collect assets that they can, you know, people's money and pay them a higher uh, rate of return than they would get on a savings account, much higher. Uh, but not as much as they could get by now owning, you know, treasury securities and, you know, use that money to make uh, loans, et cetera, uh, which they now have to take reserves against. And so then they bought some, you know, green sky point of sale consumer business. And so they sort of inched out into all of these things and uh, in the process uh, realized that it's a harder business than they thought and it's not profitable. And, you know, it's sort of they've lost three or $4 billion. And as a result, uh, the Wall Street analysts that cover Goldman Sachs don't like that because that dilutes their profitability. Uh, and of course, the bankers and the other parts of the business inside Goldman Sachs, the bankers and traders who are you know, working their ass off and making all this money off for the firm have the bonus pool diluted by the losses on the consumer side of the business. So basically, everybody is screaming for Goldman to get out of those businesses, even though it's only like three or four percent of their revenue. Everybody's just making all these noises that this time has come for David and Goldman to get out of these things. And when you have an investor day like you did last week, that just provides a forum for it all. And so that all came out last week. And, you know, bonuses uh, were uh, having uh, been paid uh, at the beginning of the year and people were pissed that their bonuses were down 50 percent. And especially pissed that their bonuses were down 50%, while David Solomon's bonus was only down 29%. And so, you know, you have grumbling uh, coming out of 200 West Street. Yeah, Bill, the, the losses on the, the commercial banking side are funny to me. I actually have one of those Apple credit cards where they partnered with Goldman, where apparently they're losing so much money. I actually did some research before hopping on the phone with you here today. 
Apparently, the reason that the Apple credit card actually lost so much money for for Goldman in the last year or two is that the card is too good for consumers. Like, it doesn't have any annual fees. It doesn't have a lot of other kind of hidden fees. The Apple user interface on your iPhone is actually so good about reminding you to make interest payments that people aren't actually racking up that much interest. And so there's not a not a lot for for Goldman to work with there. But talk to me also about the losses on the um, asset and wealth management side, because um, my understanding is that Goldman invests money alongside clients and that there's some concern that that's tying up too much of the firm's money that could be deployed elsewhere. Yeah. So first of all, it turns out that the credit card business uh, at scale is a lot harder than people you know, that Goldman may have thought it was. You know, there's a reason there's, it's basically, you know, an oligopoly uh, already because you know, there are high barriers to entry and very capital intensive. And, you know, it's a tough business uh, to to manage. You know, so there's a subtle thing going on, you know, on the asset and wealth, you know, management side, which my friend, you know, Mike Mayo was needling David Solomon about at the Investor Day. And that is that, you know, basically the Dodd-Frank uh, law, you know, essentially ma- mandated that investment banks get out of the principal investing business. And so Goldman uh, shut down its proprietary trading business uh, or is in the process of shutting it down or has been in the process of shutting it down or liquefying all that. But it actually, uh, unlike its competitors, decided to like go whole hog into what is really a great business, which is the private equity business. And whereas, you know, JP Morgan got out of the private equity business, like JP Morgan Partners is now its own thing. And Morgan Stanley got out of the private equity business and Bank of America got out of the private business, equity business, and Citigroup got out of the private equity business. Goldman decided to stay in the private equity business because A, they're good at it. B, it's a great business, as, as we know, even better business than investment banking. But the problem is that the the regulators don't want Goldman to be in the business, so, or they think there's risk attached to it more than just regular risk, which I don't really see. But nevertheless, that's what the regulators think, and so they charge them a higher capital costs, and you know, require them to have more capital to put against that business. So there's too much capital. Mike Mayo's point is there's too much capital tied up in that business, and it hurts the return on on equity for the overall firm. Bill, how much of the internal frustrations at Goldman that have been spilling into the press have to do with the fact that David Solomon has this side hustle as a DJ? I I know this sounds like sort of a silly question on some level, but this was a charming fact about him when he first became a CEO uh, a couple years ago. Now it seems to surface in all of the media coverage of him, almost as like a metaphor for him not totally having his eyes on the ball do you think that's fair? Well, I know David doesn't think it's fair. And I know he doesn't like when people in the media talk about, you know, the two private jets that he had Goldman buy and that he uses them to fly off to go golfing with his clients and prospective clients. Um, like a lot of I CEOs. Think, you know, on Wall Street, uh, you know, perception does matter more than probably David realizes. You know, this has been a ongoing thing at Goldman for a long, a long time. You know, at various points, it sort of ebbs and flows. Sometimes Goldman wants to get along with the public. Sometimes it doesn't care if it does or not. And I think David thinks probably, you know, I will get criticized. 
unfairly uh, for me being a DJ. I'm doing my job. Uh, you know, I'm allowed to have extracurricular activities. You know, no one would criticize me if I was going hiking or canoeing. But if I am a DJ, they criticize me. You know, other bank CEOs have private jets too. Why is everybody focusing on my private jets and when I go off and play golf with, you know, various uh, celebs? It's probably unfair, but you're Goldman Sachs, you know, you've always been at Goldman Sachs, the uh, focus of everybody's attention. You got to take the good with the bad. I mean, you know, that Goldman Sachs jersey gets you a lot of access that other banks dream about. And so along with that uh, access to clients and other opportunities, you're going to have to put up with a little uh, extra scrutiny. So I, I know you've got tough, uh, a tough hide, uh, David. So, you know, deal with it. <laughs> well said. All right. Well, Bill, thanks as always for coming on. We appreciate you. And uh, I'll see you next time. Thank you, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.